Um, some of you may know this, maybe not all of you. Uh, my wife has gotten into nursing school in the last year, and this was a huge accomplishment for her. Part of her story is that she struggled in her primary education very young, and it was hard to catch up. She actually didn't graduate high school, and when she started going to community college to try to finish, she didn't do well. She backed out. Years later, she returned back, worked hard, had to take uh, the absolute lowest level math class she could, had to retake certain math classes back to back because it was hard to get beyond them. She had this vision in her head. She wanted to be a nurse. But to be a nurse, you have to take pre-calculus. And you needed to have your high school diploma. You needed to get through these things. So she worked through it. We had kids. She had to continue working through it. She got her high school diploma after being a mom. She continued to fight her way through school. Um, I'm proud of her. Sorry. I'll, I'll calm down. Uh, she, she got into nursing school. After applying the second time, she didn't get in the first time and got the rejection letter. Uh, got in the second time, has worked her way through it. And at this point, she's on the honor roll at school and she's um, doing extremely well. She's the student that some other students go to and they can't get it and they need some help. And she's doing this, well, we've got a five-year-old at home and a two-year-old. Uh, and uh, I'm not super, super available because I work three jobs while she's in nursing school. So it's a little tough. It's tight, but we had this amazing blessing happen recently. That's an incredible story. And so they were told, apply for these scholarships to this one particular donation group. And so she wrote her, she wrote in, and it, you know, there's things you put in your demographic, and that all works against her. Nothing really stands out. But then they say, tell us a bit about yourself. And she told that story, and it must have moved them so greatly because they rewarded her for what that group gives, the largest scholarship they can. And we won't be paying for the remainder of nursing school. And it's an amazing story. It's worth telling because when, when we tell stories like that, um, it, it gives other people this faith and this confidence in God that God will do. If it's long, if it's short, if the battle is going to be uh, immediate, God has this amazing way of using setbacks and successes to all build on each other. That they're not setbacks. He'll take the things, as we sang, intended for evil and turns them for good, makes them into a strength. Because now one of the reasons why she's so determined in school is that she knows herself. She knows, I cannot get it the first time, but keep hitting it again and again, and eventually I will. There's a strength about it. But what about the other kind of testifying about the other way life can be? What about when we're praying and we're praying and we're praying and we want God to do something very specific and nothing is happening? And we're asking and we're seeking because a testimony is I asked God for a thing and he did it and it can be encouraging. But what about times when it feels like God is completely silent and he's doing nothing? It can have very much the opposite effect. We experience those to where it erodes faith and hope. Yet this happens so often in our lives, it's worth talking about. That uh, is the, the great testimony is the ways God answered prayer is amazing, but we also need to cope with the reality that there will become times that you've experienced and that you will experience where it seems like you're crying out and nothing's happening. It's easy to believe that God is active in his goodness and when things are going well, but it takes a great, great level of growth to believe the same when nothing's happening. I think uh, the fear of God is, 
it's native to us at some degree. You know, it, being human's weird. It's like you're fallen, but you're also blessed at the same time. There's a part of us that is afraid to fight with God, to, to argue with him and to, to, to accuse him or complain at him. And so we get stuck in these loops. I'm angry with God, but I won't say anything. I can't let myself feel that. I have doubts, but I need to suppress them. And and as scary as this might sound, for the next four weeks, I want to explore that space of unanswered prayers. I think it would be good for us to have a moment to think of those things, to encourage us that we'd be prepared for when those moments come. When we don't understand what's going on, we have a tendency to doubt everything. And if we can hang on to in those moments, even those moments, God's love and dedication is for us, it is critical to remember. In the worst times, this is still true. God never forgets you. So what we're going to do for four weeks is the plan is that we are going to do a brief but meaningful study on the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is in what's considered uh, the minor prophets. There are prophets in Scripture that wrote passages. You've got big ones like Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah. Those are major prophets, wrote large books, ministered long. Everybody knew their name. But the minor prophets wrote less. And people at the time didn't know them as well. And Habakkuk is one of them. It's important before we get into it, though, that we know a little bit about it, because this book can be a lot of nonsense if you don't get the context. But if you get the context, it becomes highly relatable. This is a funny book because we know a lot about it, and we know a little, both at the same time. Of Habakkuk himself, we don't know much about him at all. We know he was once a guy who had a prophetic vision or had a prophetic word and he wrote it down. We don't know what tribe he was from. We don't know who his father was. We don't know what his role was. Some prophets were prophets because God said so. Some were prophets because they were part of the school of prophets, which I know sounds weird, but Israel basically had like a prophet academy that you could belong to and get credentialed. (laughs) Uh, Moses wrote about prophets before there was this prophetic ministry. He set up a a guideline of what they would be, and the school of prophets used that, far too often endorsing false prophets. But uh, we don't know if he was literally a prophet. Was he a priest? Was he a judge? We really don't know a lot about him. There's, very, there's absolutely no reference to him anywhere else in the Bible, which doesn't mean he didn't exist. It just means he wasn't famous in his day. But we also know a lot, a lot, a lot about his context and history. This is funny. In most, if you read about books of the Bible and you see what scholars analyze, when was it written, they give you usually like a 200 to 400 year window. They say somewhere in there this was written. Or it could be within a century. Now, that, that's really pinpointed. I'm not kidding you. Habakkuk is down to somewhere in four years. They've got him nailed down that close. It's almost like they could say, he wrote it at three in the afternoon, and we believe he used this pen. Like, they have got it down. And the reason is very simple. Uh, the historical context is what matters. You see, Habakkuk is written after King Josiah's death, but before the rise of Neo-Babylon. It's a four-year window in time. King Josiah, it's critical to know who he was. He was considered a good king who reigned between two wicked kings. Judah used to have good kings. They degrade, they get worse, they get worse, they get worse. King Ammon comes on the scene, and he was called the worst of all time. 
He put to death priests. He closed the temple. It was a time of of horrific degradation to the nation. Josiah becomes king as just a young boy and begins these grand reforms, clears out the temple, rediscovers the scriptures, uh, purges all the land of temples and high places of worship. It's considered uh, a time of revival. And then after him, King Jehoiakim raises to power. You see, Babylon, uh, one of the huge themes in this, in this whole book is God opens up with this. And we, we won't read this today. We'll probably read it next week. But he basically says, I'm going to tell you something, Habakkuk, and I'm going to tell it to you, and nobody's going to believe you. Babylon is about to rise to power. And it would have been a shock to the world, and historically it was. Babylon was an ancient and dead empire centuries past their prime. The fact that they beat the Assyrians was a shock. And so what the world looked at it like, imagine, imagine how the world outside the West would feel if for some reason England and the United States went to war and England won. They'd probably say, wow, the cat's away. Like, England is a dead, is an anemic dead old empire. They can't do anything, and America's out of the picture. So we're in charge now. This was the dynamic in the Levant where Israel was and all over the Middle Eastern world. When Assyria fell to ancient, old, decrepit Babylon, it seemed like there was no global empire. Babylon was gone. And it would have been a shock to the world to know that in four years' time, they're going to win a battle at Carchemish that's going to make it extremely clear to you, to Egypt, and to every empire. Neo-Babylon is back. Neo-Babylon is considered the second rise of Babylon, hundreds of years past their prime. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon returned as a power that was, that was unprecedented in its time and far surpassed its former glory. It was a shock. They went from to old ruins to building the hanging gardens in a matter of one king's reign. It was an absolute shock. It'd be like saying, okay, you think it's funny that England won? Well, get ready because the redcoats are coming back, and they're worse than last time. It was that level of a shock to the world. So the fact that it is a shock means it's before Carchemish. The fact that it's after Josiah's death means that it's from 605 to 609, and the context and the culture in that city and that nation in the world at that time is what makes this whole book understandable. Because Babylon, too, is about to rise, and it's worse than last time. It takes place during a time we could call the post-King Josiah disillusionment. King Josiah's revival turns out to be awfully shallow, and Judah is a hard place to live. Josiah reigned between those two evil kings, and in his time, Assyria falls. And even though Assyria never conquered Judah, they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah was considered a vassal state, meaning do what we say, march to the beat of our drummer, we're going to do it to you too. So when they're gone, that is when the nation actually has the political prowess to push out Assyrian idols, to get rid of them, and to reestablish their national god as god. As we see the weakness of this revival, one of the things was the way that it It destroyed this religious revival with nationalism at the same time. That to Josiah, to reestablish Yahweh as God, there was a part of him that he was a good king, but some of it also had to do with the fact that the cat was away. They could reset themselves and start their own kingdom again. 
So he throws off the shackles of Assyria, reestablishes Judaism as a state religion. He restored much of Israel's glory, reconquering territory that belonged to the northern kingdom and calling it Israel again. But Josiah wanted to throw off more than just Assyria. He went to war against Egypt, and he was told by prophets not to do it. Real prophets, prophets of God, don't do it. God's not going to give you victory. He went anyway, and to the nation's shock, Josiah was slain in battle. At that point, evil King Jehoiakim, you could tell by his name, the kind of way he reigned, he ascends the throne. And within months, the judicial system broke down to where judges are bribed and there is no justice. Violence breaks out and idol worship is restored. So after this season of optimism, people felt like we're back. We're back. It's David's kingdom again. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to move forward. It's, everything is going to be good. We know the world. We're going to pass our children's a great one. Within four years, it was stripped right out of their hands. This is a time of great pain for them. And this is the historical context of the book of Habakkuk. The days were brief. They ended abruptly. And at least before, they had the hope of the oppressed. The hope of the oppressed is, is that one day, when we're in charge, all of this will be fixed. And then they become in charge, and it's worse than it's ever been. That is a depressing place to be. Everything is falling apart. And where Habakkuk is having trouble, as he says, where is God? Everything's falling apart. We were doing well. We were trying, and now it seems that all my neighbors are just falling apart. I can't even appeal to any kind of justice because the judges are getting paid off. What is going on? And I would imagine his sentiment and the sentiment of all those that felt like them would sound like the first time the nation was recorded grumbling. The first reference to it is in the book of uh, Exodus, and they grumble and they come to Moses and they say, did you leave us out from under our oppressors to bring us here to die? Did you take us out from under the hand of Pharaoh to bring us here to die? That was the alliance that Josiah had wrecked. Did you bring us out from under an agreement with the Euphrates empires just to bring us here to die? God, where are you? And there's a sinistering thing that despite the fact we know nothing about Habakkuk, he is deeply loved. He has a disproportionate amount of legendarium written to him, of, of Jews that wrote additional stories. There's a, a legend story. It's not true, but it's recorded, and it's a very old story of Daniel. It says that Daniel was in the lion's den, and that God told the prophet, you bring stew to Daniel in the lion's den. And then an angel picks the prophet up by his hair and flies him out to, to uh, the lion's den and, and uh, gives him the stew and then flies him back by his hair. It's not scripture. That's, that's a made-up story. But you know who they picked for that prophet? Could have been anybody. They picked Habakkuk. Israel continues to write about Habakkuk. They, can sit, they think about him way more than he thought about himself when he wrote this. They came up with certain things. There's legend that he was a Levite priest. They have all these things they fleshed out about him because for some reason, people love Habakkuk. And the reason that is uh, given by most scholars is that he is the people's prophet. He's unique from the other prophets. Most prophets prophesied to people on behalf of God. 
Habakkuk's prayer is unto God on behalf of the people. We always love the one who speaks for me. Whoever that is, the person who speaks up for you. I, I once got in a really minor car accident and this, uh, these people tried to sue me saying that I wrecked their whole lives. And I remember they put the photos up and they went to court. They told me it settled outside of court. It didn't. And then when they put the photos up in front of the jury, people in the jury box just went, like you could tell they weren't going to fall for it. Like barrow scratches on the bumper. It was this horrible thing. It was really painful. When you sit in a courtroom and hear an educated, well-wording, articulate lawyer lie about you professionally, it's devastating. When you're a kid, you're getting sued for half a million dollars, it's devastating. And then my lawyer, Katie Buxman, a name I will never forget, <laughs> she was fierce. She got up there and I was like, I don't know who she is, but if she's attacked in the parking lot, I'm fighting for her. Katie is my hero. I will never forget Katie Buxman. She did so well that she was made a partner not long after her case. I swear it's because how well she did in that courtroom. I'm telling you, if you're backed into a corner, find Katie Buxman. We love the person who speaks up for us. Remember one of the reasons that we were so connected with that image of God praying for, or Christ praying for us constantly as our high priest. We, Habakkuk is still loved. Because if you're cut down, if you're downtrodden, confused, if you're disappointed, if you're met with silence in a challenge in life, Habakkuk still speaks for you. His words are still your words. His words are our words in that disappointing and quiet time. So let's read uh, four verses today. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, and you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that righteousness, or so that the righteous are, uh, excuse me, so that justice is perverted. There is this significant crossover to two prophets that, reign, that prophesied at very similar times. 200 years before this, Assyria destroyed Samaria, the capital of northern Israel. The prophet Amos was the one that, ran, that prophesied in that city before its destruction. And he also described the world as the same thing, incredible injustice. Prophet Amos is where we hear that famous verse uh, where he talks about, I hate your festivals and your, your sacrifices. They mean nothing to me. Um, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. That what God was offended by. Sometimes we think that he destroyed or, or judged these nations or put them out and brought them back strictly for idol worship. We find out if we listen to the prophets that were speaking at that time, it was the injustice that hit God at his core that infuriated him. Both nations look similar when they are ripe for justice. Corruption, violence, arrogance, injustice. Maybe this is what nations look like before they fall. The law is forsaken, and that's something critical. I don't think we think often about the power and the importance of law, impartial law. 
It is so important to have law that when God established his people in the Old Testament, the first thing he gave them was a law. It is the thing that governs them. Law says what is right and wrong. It is the law that makes a king pay back a peasant if he steals from him. It is the law that tells a mighty and strong military they cannot slay unarmed innocents. Law is society's bedrock, and it's given to God, or it's given from God to mankind. And when it's gone, society dies. So just how sick does a place really become without law? I think of this quote often. It's so beautiful. I wish I actually, I think it's anonymous, but it's good. It goes like this. Evening draws near when small men cast long shadows. Evening draws near when small men cast long shadows. When law begins to break down, it always favors the wicked and the violent. In evil times, evil people are simply empowered. I think of this sort of like, uh, imagine an abusive father in a family. Wherever they go, they, they could go to a family reunion, they could be going to church, they could be going to a barbecue with friends, and the entire time, and I find this amazing, as you read about the pattern of abusers, they are thinking about it well before everybody else, what they're going to say when they get there, what they're going to do, because they're manipulative. They want to get there, and they want to look like the, the, the world's perfect dad. They want, to, they want to control things, keep all their kids in line. They will put on displays of being affectionate. And yet the whole time they start thinking about how they're going to divide people against each other. Abusive fathers divide children against each other if they are getting threatened by their closeness. I don't think that way, and neither do you. They lie, they gossip, they manipulate, and for years the manipulation comes to this one point where the man thinks to himself, I will be so charming that when she tells them what home is like, nobody will believe her. And all he's doing when he's around people is playing manipulative chess. When out of virtue of her uh, honesty and integrity, his wife is playing checkers. Because I'll tell you what, when I go to, to, to a family reunion or church, I don't think about how I'm going to divide the room to favor my power. I just don't want to embarrass myself. Honestly, if I leave here today and didn't embarrass myself, I'm good. I'm not going to sit here abusively and be like, Jason's getting awfully close to people, and he's the associate pastor. I better get in there and go say, you know, Jason was telling me that uh, your t- tires on your wife's car are super bald, and he thinks it's really irresponsible for you to do that. So just don't, you didn't hear that from me. I don't do that. But I'll tell you what, if there's no law and there's no justice, that will favor the abusive man. But I'll tell you what, an abusive man's chickens come home to roost when he stands before a judge. If law is impartial, if he can't pay that judge off, it doesn't matter how much stronger he is than his wife and kids. It doesn't matter how much he's lied and manipulated. He is done because the law of the land says you cannot do that to your wife and kids. You cannot hit them. You cannot do the things you are doing, and he will pay. But evil people win in evil times. If the law is not there to defend the honest and the trustworthy and the trusting, it goes poorly for them. Lawlessness favors the evil man as surely as a sound courtroom will favor the innocent. 
This is why law matters to God. Because God cares about the powerless. He cares about the powerless. That when he enforced law in Israel, he made the king of Israel pay back for what he did to a servant. When he administered and people still heard him and still carried out his justice, strong people couldn't get away with it because the law was empowered. And thus, his incredible, painful thing he says there, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. This is why it's so critical, I think, that we always live with a sense of internal law within us. Is that the Holy Spirit in that room? I don't know. (laughs) I know those voices. They're all related to me, too. That's my, those are my kids and my nephews. All right. I I would bet a million dollars Camille started that. Okay. This is why I think it's so important that we live individually um, guided by what is right and not what we can get away with. That with every choice, we submit to lawfulness and to order in the spirit of God. That just because we're clever enough to cover it up doesn't mean that it's right to do. That law matters to God. God defends the just when their time comes. And to live by principle is to live in God's heart. It's true, the law of Moses was powerless to grant eternal life. We know that from the New Testament. But it was powerful to defend the innocent. And when it was thrown out, the nation fell apart. Habakkuk says in his heart, the thing we say about so many things in life, that this is not the way that it should be. It shouldn't be going like this. I am now powerless, stripped of my natural buffers I used to have assurance in. And the only one that can help me now is not helping. Law is gone. The ultimate judge, the God over this nation, needs to rise up and reestablish justice because I have no one to appeal to, and he is dead silent. Do you love Habakkuk yet? Does he sound like you yet? Have you ever felt like him? Thinking to yourself, I used to have confidence in my wealth, and it's, it's slipping away. And now the only one that I can have confidence in is ghosting me just as bad as my wealth. I used to feel like the one thing I didn't have to worry about in life was my health, but now after seeing my doctor, it seems like that's falling apart. I need God to heal me. I need him to do something. Why isn't he doing it? A government I used to trust in, I don't trust any longer. The only person I know more powerful than the world's most powerful government is God himself. Why isn't he doing anything? My only hope in my solid rock in this swampy land that's getting worse around me, I can't find it. You see, Habakkuk, he is going to get a reply. I wouldn't call it an answer, but he's going to get a reply. We're not, we'll read that in the weeks to come. We're not going to read it today because it's worth stopping here. Habakkuk's example of an outpoured heart. Human nature is filled with grumbling and complaining and doing it the easiest way. Complaining to the person who has nothing to do with it. To where if you're you're angry at dad, you complain to mom. If you're angry at mom, you complain to dad and you never talk to the other person. 
You can be angry with one friend, you speak with the other. Everybody in here has heard some of the meanest things and most angry, violent attacks against you, not from the person who said it, but from the person who heard the person who said it. We never go to the one we should go to. Unresolved frustration is the garbage of life, and we can't let it build up. We got to dump it before uh, our house grows sick with waste. With real trash, it's critical where you dump it. Literal trash, the stuff in the garbage can. You can't let it pile up in the garage. You can't just pile it up in your car. You can't leave it on the front lawn. It needs to be sorted. Some of it will go to recycle and be reused. Some will go to a landfill for decomposition. And some will go into the composter and will bring life to your garden. So also, you can't hold on to grief and disillusionment. The house will grow sick. You can't keep it. And where you dump it is critical. Where it goes. You cannot dump it where it shouldn't go. You can't dump your feelings on the girl of the checkout line. You can't complain enough to people and have it go away. I have found complaining to the wrong person never makes it better. It makes it worse. It makes me more, more confident in my stupid idea. I'll go complain about something to someone, and very few people are brave enough to go, I hear what you're saying, but do you know you're wrong? Who, who does that? If they do, make that person your best friend. Uh, they're uncommon. Most people go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I disagree with myself all the more. You need to go to the right person, not just complaining brokenly. And you can't dump your disillusionment and pain into distractions. It doesn't help either. It needs to go somewhere. If you're hurt and wondering why God isn't doing anything, take that frustration to the only place you should, to God. Because notice something. Habakkuk isn't complaining about God. Habakkuk is complaining to God. Not to people, not grumbling in his heart, not keeping it quiet. He was the one who had the courage to go speak and to speak his concerns and others to God. He doesn't varnish his feelings at all. He says exactly what's on his mind. And the prophecy that follows changes him. It makes him into the prophet that people love. There would be no book of Habakkuk if Habakkuk left words unsaid. Haven't you had someone upset with you and they won't tell you why? You can tell you feel the tension. You're like, please tell me, and they won't. Doesn't that drive you crazy? It's way worse. I think they know that. (laughs) Uh, It's torture. Have you ever had a relationship die in silence? You wanted to figure out why that friend won't talk to you anymore. Why is it that they went from being your best friend to hearing all these horrible things being said about you coming through other people? What happened? They never debrief with you, and you go to the grave not knowing what happened. And have you ever had that relational openness and intimacy when the person finally tells you how they're feeling and there's open communication? If you're full of strife, tell God about it. There are some times that this broken sense of the fear of God makes it to where we're not going to tell God exactly how we feel, even though we know full well that he knows it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think uh, I really like the message translation. I'm just, if, you're not, if you're not familiar with it, the scholar took Greek and translated the ideas and not the words into English, so it's the concepts in Greek that we can miss. He wrote it this way. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let your petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come down and, will, excuse me, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces the worry at the center of your life. Habakkuk won't get an answer, but he'll get a reply. And you may not know the answer at this time, but you should know that a reply does come. A peace in the midst of that chaos that gives us assurance whether the path ahead is going to be long, short, easy, or hard, that God will never forget you and that he is good. To take those concerns, the fear, the anger you have with God, and to turn that emotion into an honest and unvarnished prayer. I think one of the greatest things that comes out of Habakkuk's ministry is this. Stop praying polished prayers and start praying honest prayers of where you're really, really at. Like any one of us in our intimate relationships, we want someone to tell us where they're really at. I would rather hear what someone really thinks about me than to get some perfectly polished, it sounded like they complimented me, but they walk away still thinking I'm trash. I would rather just have it open. It gives you something to heal up from. As long as people don't talk about what's really going on, you'll never heal that core. And finally, last detail about Habakkuk. Every prophet's name meant something. We see that before they were prophets, God was in the minds of their parents preparing them for this moment. And when their name was chosen, it meant something. Habakkuk's name means to embrace or to caress. And like Habakkuk, what he teaches us is that we need to embrace the negative feelings that we really have, the fears, the doubts, and the pain that we have, and we need to embrace God with those same pains, to take hold of them completely and then take hold of God, to bring that pain to him honestly and truthfully. And when no words will do, and sometimes words can't answer the questions that we're asking and embrace from God, transcends over us and gives us a peace that he can bring things together, that things can come together. It's the beginning of crawling out of pain and disillusionment to pray an imperfect and honest prayer. If you're at a spot right now where you're frustrated with God, the question is, have you told him? Have you opened that up? Have you made it to where your whole spirit is saying, God, it's all open to you and I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna speak it to you and I'm gonna pray the honest prayer to really go there with the Lord and begin where Habakkuk does because though the pain comes, uh, or the, the healing comes slowly, though the frustration takes a while, the unanswered question puts tension through all four chapters of this book. We know that God did bring justice to that nation, that he judged those who were in power, that he brought them down low, and when the time came, he restored them, bringing them back to being at peace, bringing them back to their land, letting the weak people have a place to stand again, reestablishing justice. 
doesn't always happen in our time. <laughs> My wife was 17 when she found out that she was probably not going to graduate high school. And she'll be a nurse when she's, a, when she's 36. It didn't happen as fast as you might think. I imagine the prayer she said in her room when she was alone and all her friends moved away to college. She might not have realized it would take that long. But God still answered. He was still with her. He still cared about her. We have frustrations. We don't know why. I don't even know if we'll get an answer for all of our frustrations before we die. But the prophet of embrace gives us a message that is so critical. Start the healing process by praying a really honest prayer. Lord, today we come into your presence. If we keep coming so dressed up, so polished, so combed over, quizzing ourselves before we come in, what does he want me to say? How am I supposed to behave? And God, could we just take the full dysfunction and brokenness that we're feeling, the frustration, the things that we're so convinced with, and let us complain to you in prayer? open and honest. God, I pray that you could step into the room that we keep pushing you out of. In all the ways your Holy Spirit comes to us and says, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Would you empower us so that this time we would quit saying, I'm fine. They could say, I am not fine. And quite frankly, I can't escape the feeling that I feel like you're the problem. I am frustrated. And I'm stuck. Everything I used to feel peace about is gone. And I read in this book that it says that you're supposed to be there in that time, but where the heck are you? Lord, come in to that freshly tilled earth of frustration and plant new things. We feel your embrace today. And even though we wait and we wait and we wait for things to be resolved, we could have the embrace of God today to cope and to get through it and to move beyond it and to not sacrifice it. And this moment is still a great moment to grow in our relationship with you. Thank you for Habakkuk, the prophet who speaks for us. Thank you for the son who prays for us constantly. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us today, letting us speak to our father with honesty. Time we feel frustrated, God. Would you pop the cork open a little bit more and heal us this week in your name we pray. Amen.